Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Close your eyes for a moment. I want to ask you a couple of questions. As your eyes are closed and we are sitting here in the church building, many of you are more familiar with the church than others, but there is a phrase inside the, on, on the wall inside the connect room. What does that phrase say? Just answer there in your heart with your eyes closed. Currently, just behind me, there are lights shining on the wall. What color are those lights? Rich, I say you opening your eyes is just cheating. Well, what color are those lights? Currently, there are some TVs displayed in this auditorium right now. How many TVs are displayed? Think about how many TVs are in here. How many are displayed? Now, with your eyes closed, I understand that not everyone in this room has the same level of familiarity with our building. And so I will ask you a few questions here in just a few moments that uh, perhaps you're more familiar with that maybe you can answer. But with that being said, go ahead and open up your eyes. In that phrase or that room there, there's a phrase on the wall and that phrase says, welcome to our family. Raise your hand if you got that right. Three or four people. Okay. Raise your hand if you got the color of those lights right when I asked you. Most of you, most of you. There are currently three TVs displayed in this auditorium. Raise your hand if you knew that there were three. Okay. I would be concerned if you didn't say at least two. I would not want to be in the car with you driving if you didn't know that there were at least two in here. Now, again, that might be a little unfair because I understand that not everybody is at the same level of familiarity with our building. And so let me ask you this question. You think about your home. Currently in your home, how many lamps are displayed in your living room? Think about that number. If you were to go into your kitchen and open up the refrigerator, how much milk is currently sitting in your refrigerator? How much milk is left? In your bedroom, in the bed that you sleep, what color are your bed sheets? Just think about that for a moment. You ask yourself, Pastor Brandon, why in the world are you asking us these questions? Well, that's for this reason. Sometimes we can become so familiar with something that we fail to appreciate it. We fail to observe it. We fail to acknowledge it. And one of the biggest dangers in Christianity today is that we can become so familiar with our salvation that we fail to remember the significance of God's grace that has been afforded to us as believers. So take your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study in the book of Colossians. Last week we began our verse-by-verse chapter-by-chapter journey through this book of Colossians. This book is one of the prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul, addressed to the church in Colossae. Now, the church of Colossae was not founded by the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, it was fruit founded by two men that were saved underneath the Apostle Paul's ministry. It was founded by Epaphras and Philemon. They went and they founded this church. The Apostle Paul, matter of fact, never actually met the people that were part of the church of Colossae. He never even met them, but he had a strong love and a burden for them. While Paul was in prison, we understand that he was in uh, prison in Rome at this particular time underneath house arrest. He had the opportunity to have guests come and deliver things to him and he could send things with guests. And so there was a little bit more freedom than being in a, a jail cell somewhere as you typically think of being in prison. And so the Apostle Paul was approached by Epaphras, one of those founding fathers, and he had a great concern for this church of Colossae. 
See, this church of Colossae was not a bad church. It was a church that Paul describes as the beginning part of this book as having one and a deep faith in Christ. It was one that had a great love for the fellow brethren and the church. And so they were not a bad church. The problem was they were confused. They allowed false doctrine to creep inside the church, and the problem was becoming so bad that they were actually headed on their way to destruction. So they were influenced by all these influx of ideas from Greek Orthodox and from the Jewish uh, legalism that, that they preached and taught before salvation. And also, on top of all of that, they were heavily influenced by Gnosticism. And all of these false religions and false philosophies crept into the church, therefore confusing them on what the gospel truly was all about. And so what Paul did, being burdened by this, he constructed this letter as a critical alternative to the false philosophies and ideas that had crept into the church. So Paul develops really this defense of the gospel by appealing to the foundation of Christ's preeminence. Now, when we say the word preeminence, it means surpassing all others. It means superior. So in reference to Christ, it refers to the fact that Christ is all we have and all we need in order to be complete. As I shared last week, we hold to more or less the five solas of the Reformation, right? And one of them being sola Christus, or in Christ alone. So we are saved by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else that needs to be added to that for our salvation. And unfortunately, not only do a lot of religions add to works to that, but there's also, and I do believe this is in an innocent way, good churches that confuse this subject of being in Christ alone. They add to salvation, yes, is in faith in Christ, but then you must do all these things, dress a certain way, do this, do that, not listen to this, listen to that, and more or less that is evidence of you being a genuine Christian, and it's whatever they lay out and, and whatever they define as being biblical. And it can be confusing. And this church in Colossae was confused, and so the Apostle Paul delivers really this of refute to this by speaking on this preeminence of Christ. And so what he does is he lays it out in three different ways. And in chapter 1, Paul examines the doctrine of Christ's preeminence. In chapter 2, he examines the defense of Christ's preeminence in light of the other philosophies. And in chapters 3 and 4, he focuses on the practical side of the preeminence of Christ. In other words, because Christ is preeminent, what does that mean for me in my life? Last, last week, we examined Paul's gospel-filled prayer for the church, which, hap which happens to be the foundation of our theme this year, which is Walk Worthy, our teaching theme. And that is found in Colossians chapters 9, or chapter 1, verses 9 through uh, 11. And we noticed this last week. Paul prays for a deeper spiritual knowledge for the people. This is not a spiritual knowledge to determine what God's will is for my future. In other words, who does God want me to marry? Where does God want me to live? What kind of job does God want me to take? This is not what Paul's talking about when he says a deeper spiritual knowledge. He's referring to a deeper spiritual knowledge of the things that please God, of the things that are evidence of our genuine Christianity. That is his prayer. Because in reality, when we are diving into our deeper relationship with God, when we are seeking to place God number one in all of our life and everything, all of those other questions that we have prayers about or, or prayer requests for, like who we're supposed to marry, where we're supposed to live, they're going to be answered by our pursuit of pleasing God in all things. The second thing that he prays for, as we discovered last week, is a vibrant spiritual walk. In other words, he prays that we would walk worthy. In other words, we would properly represent the Christ in whom we identify with. As the world looks at us, do they see Christ in the proper way? 
by our love, by our actions, by our words. And then the final prayer that he has for them is a steadfast spiritual endurance because the Apostle Paul understands that the moment you take a step for Christ, that's when the attacks are going to come on even stronger than they ever had before. And so he prays for a spiritual endurance. But as we come to verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul speaks on this first aspect of Christ's preeminence, and that is in regard to our redemption. Through these verses, what Paul does is he reveals to us the sufficiency of Christ in regards to our salvation. So if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word, we're going to read Colossians chapter 1 and just look at three verses here today. Verses 12 through 14. It says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. As I opened with the illustration of our familiarity regarding our surroundings this morning, we are reminded how easy it is to overlook our salvation the grace that we have in Christ. We've become so familiar with it that we fail to live in the awe of what God has done for us. So my prayer this morning is that whether you've been saved for two months or 20 years, that the all of God's grace would be something that is new for you every morning. So the title of the message this morning is The, pre the Preeminence of Christ in Redemption. Thank you. You may be seated. The Preeminence of Christ in Redemption. The problem was what made the false teachings so desirable for this church wasn't in the fact that they denied Jesus. Because these false teachings did not deny Jesus. Because if you were to teach something as these Christians and these followers of Christ that denied Jesus, they would just outright reject it. But they didn't. Which made it a much easier pill for them to swallow. They did not deny Jesus. They simply dethroned him. And this is more subtle. For example, the false teachings view Jesus as one of the many derivatives on the pathway to God. Rather than view Christ as preeminent, they viewed Christ as prominent. In other words, they viewed Christ as an important character on the pathway to God, but he certainly was not the only source to God. And so it made it easy for these Christians to buy into that. And this is where so many people trip up today. They place their faith in a salvation prayer as a means to God rather than in the preeminence of Christ. And what we see here in verses 12 through 14, that the Apostle Paul gives the readers three opportunities that Christ affords to us as believers through his redemption. Because Christ is preeminent, he is able to provide the following blessings to all those that place their faith and trust in Christ. And so what we're going to look at here this morning in our study is the redemption of Christ grants three things to the believer. First off, this is what we see. We are partakers of Christ's inheritance. We are partakers of Christ's inheritance. In verse 12, Paul states, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. The word meet comes from the Greek word that means sufficient. And the Greek connotation here of the word means to make sufficient or fit. This is a word in reference to the status that we have in Christians because we are in Christ. So then the question is, what are we fit for? We are fit for the inheritance that is promised to Christ. Now let's pause here for a second because we've heard this a thousand times. And what I'm telling you here this morning is a message that you've heard a thousand times. And so it's easy for us to let it go in one ear and not the other, but we cannot overlook the magnificence that's been afforded to us because of Christ. 
Within this particular context, this letter was written to a church that had a good number of Gentiles in it. And as you understand through the context of the congregation here in the Abrahamic Covenant, we understand that the blessing of God was directed towards the Jews. It was directed towards the Jewish nation. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, the Gentiles now were afforded the opportunity to receive the same blessings that were promised to the Jews. The foundation of Paul's point here is that Christ's death and resurrection brought salvation for all who believed, whether there be Jew or Gentile. If it wasn't for Christ, we would not have church today. If it wasn't for Christ, we would not be uh, receiving the inheritance that has been promised to Christ. This is a foundational point within the church for unity. The gospel unifies in every aspect. But the question then is, what is this inheritance that we are promised to look like? We talked about this all throughout Scripture, right? We're promised this inheritance of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What can really be summed up in one word, and that is heaven. We're not going to receive our full inheritance on this side of eternity, but when we step out of this earthly life into the presence of our Savior in heaven, we're going to receive the same inheritance that is afforded to Christ. And think about that for a moment. Because of the preeminence of Christ in our salvation, believers are afforded the opportunity to dwell with God and receive all of the blessings that were promised to His Son. We have that opportunity as Christians. This is unlike anything else that we've ever experienced before. The Bible describes our inheritance as being something that is imperishable, unspoiled, or unfading. This is why Scripture commands us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where no decay, corruption, or theft exists. It is pertinent for us not to focus on building riches down here on earth because one day it is all just going to decay. Our goal for Christians is to live boldly, live passionately, live purposely for God, and invest in eternity. But what makes this reception of Christ's influence or inheritance possible is the fact that through Christ, we have become the adopted children of God. We understand in Ephesians chapter 1 through 5, it says, According he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That verse is unfortunately in churches today a very controversial verse. Matter of fact, there are a lot of good pastors that I know that are split on what this verse truly means. But we have to take it as what God's word lays out. And that's, here's the facts. If you are a follower of Christ, then Jesus or God through the foundations of the world, before the foundations of the world, had chosen you in Christ to be a follower of him. It goes to that sovereign election, more or less, of God. We understand that there's also a human free will in all of this, but I'm not going to sit here to try to explain to you the tension between those two. But what we do know is this, is the fact that you are a follower of Christ means that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world. That didn't just by chance happen. So now you are a follower of Christ in Christ, and now you have the inheritance to receive in Christ. But as Christians, we have to understand this. The word adoption in our society today is a significant word, but it meant a whole lot more during the time of Paul. 
It meant a whole lot more than what we think of today. Uh, as the commentator puts it, the common understanding of adoption in this Greco-Roman world would have been functional. It was a tool of the elite, especially the emperors, to secure succession, legacy, and inheritance. Adopted sons were pulled into a bigger story and expected to fulfill an imperial promise. In those times, adoption was about coalescing and movement of power, not the rescue of orphans. So the context of adoption gives us a much better understanding of what spiritual adoption does for us. Does it rescue us? Yes, it absolutely rescues us. But it also prepares for us to have the same type of rulership or leadership or inheritance that Christ has been afforded to through his Father. What a beautiful concept. What a beautiful promise. When we dwell on this amazing truth, our response becomes the exact response of Paul at the beginning of this verse, giving thanks to the Father. When we consume our life with things that please God, we are in essence thanking Him for the inheritance that we have in Christ. But when we consume our life with things that don't really matter or things that do not please God, in essence we are saying, God, I don't fully appreciate what you've done for me through your Son. Thank you. I'm going to give a nod to this gesture that you gave me, but I'm going to still live my life the way I want to live. And we fail to thank God. Years ago, Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, had a life-saving squad that assisted passengers on Lake Michigan boats. On September 8th of 1860, a passenger boat floundered near Evanston, and a ministerial student named Edward Spencer personally rescued 17 people. The exertion of that day permanently damaged his health, and he was unable to train for the ministry. When he died some years later, it was noticed that not one of the 17 people he ever saved came to thank him. My prayer for us as Christians is that we would never live a day in which we fail to thank our Savior, in which we fail to thank our Heavenly Father for the inheritance that we have in His Son. How can we live with this renewed sense of awe for God's grace? Remember the inheritance that we have in Christ. And since Christ is preeminent, since He is the superior one in our redemption, we are then made fit to be partakers of the inheritance in Christ. And all this leads us to our second point here this morning. Since Christ is preeminent in our redemption, number two, we are citizens of God's kingdom. Look down at verse 13. It says, Who hath delivered us from the power of the darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son? The word delivered here comes from the Greek term that means to draw to oneself. The phrase power of darkness is in reference to the realm that is dominated by sin and death. And we understand that this phrasing here, the kingdom of his son, is in the realm in which Christ reigns currently. What Paul says here is that the transfer is accomplished in Christ. Jesus rescued the believers from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God. And I want us to understand something this morning. This principle here speaks of the complete depravity of man. And what we mean by that is man's inability to save himself. There's nothing about us in our own salvation that could pull us off that path headed to hell. There's nothing about us in our own strength or in our own merit that could ever afford us a relationship with God. It all came in Christ. Only by the power of Christ can God transfer man, but this is all based upon man's deliverance by God. God draws mankind to himself. Mankind then responds to the call of God through repentance and faith. God then delivers man from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his son. We deserved none of that, but in God's grace, he gave it to us. This reality once again speaks to this preeminence of Christ. 
Now, I want to pause here for a second. It's interesting how Paul phrases this. Notice that Paul doesn't refer to the kingdom as the kingdom of God. What does he say here in your verse, in your Bible? He doesn't refer to it as the kingdom of God. What does he refer to it as? We understand that there is a kingdom of God, but what does he say? Can anybody tell me? Look at your verse. Kingdom of what? His dear son. Why would he refer to it as the kingdom of his dear son? Is it really that big of a deal that Paul would choose to word it in this way? Well, understanding why Paul chose to use this phrase will give us a greater sense of all. Okay, so follow me here for a moment. We see an interesting conversation occur with Jesus in John chapter 6. In John 6, verse 37, Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and in him cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. As you continue through the chapter and drop down to verse 44, Jesus states, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up to the last day. In our observation, what we see here is that the Father gave the kingdom to His Son, Jesus. It all is reference to the kingdom of God, but the Father gave the kingdom to His Son, Jesus, which is why Paul makes a reference here in Colossians as the kingdom being the kingdom of His dear Son. So what Jesus is stating to the Colossians, or so what Jesus is stating to the people, is that the Father draws those whom He has ultimately chosen into the kingdom of His Son as a love gift to His Son. So as Christians, we are ultimately love gifts to, from the Father to His Son. My daughter, she actually has it with her here this morning. She has this little bear, little bear named Penny. It's a little black bear. She loves that black bear. She loves that black bear passionately. It's not the only stuffed animal that she has. She has about a thousand other stuffed animals. Sometimes I can't even see her laying in her crib. She's got so many. She has other black bears. But for whatever reason, she loves that black bear. That black bear was given to her by my parents over the summer when we were on top of Grandfather Mountain on summer vacation. Everywhere, you, everywhere she goes, she's holding that black bear, at least it's in the general proximity. Every time she goes to bed, she calls out for that black bear. We have to go downstairs, and she will continue to cry until she has that, and she clutches it once she grabs it. The other day I was playing around with her and I grabbed that black bear and you would have thought that she was going to murder me after grabbing that black bear. That black bear was a love gift to her and she loves it desperately. You see where I'm going with this. We as Christians are love gifts from the father to his son. If Emerson, being a little girl, has that much of an appreciation of love for a stuffed animal, how much more do you think that the Heavenly Father and His Son has a love for us as His love gifts, as His children? May we never overlook that reality. May we never overlook the grace that we have been afforded to in Christ. In God's power and grace through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, we are transferred from the power of darkness and the kingdom of His Son. And then the final thing that you see here, because Christ is preeminent in our salvation, He affords us the opportunity to have a forgiveness of all sins. To have a forgiveness of all sins. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The word redemption here refers to the act of freeing someone who is enslaved. We can look at the Old Testament as a visual image of what it means for us, but in the book of Exodus, we see that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And the Old Testament is really just a visual image of our entire salvation, right? It's, it's painting the picture, it's paving the way for the Messiah. They were under the control of 
the Egyptian people, God raised up Moses as a great leader, and Moses led the Israelites out of captivity, freeing them from the enslavement of the Egyptians. What the Apostle Paul does here is he writes to the Colossian believers that they were rescued from their enslavement to sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means through the word redeemed. Redeemed means to buy back. All men everywhere were born as slaves to sin, and those that repent of their sins place their faith and trust in Christ's death and resurrection on behalf of their sins. They are redeemed. They are freed from the bondage of sin bought back through the currency of Jesus' blood. I've shared this example with you before, but it is such a great example to explain this concept of redemption. There was a little boy who worked hard, and kind of reminds me of my son, Casey, and he's really into building things right now. And so this little boy went outside one day, and he grabbed some wood, and he worked really hard, and he built this little sailboat. And so he went over to the lake, he carried that sailboat, he put it into the lake, and he had to sail up, and he wanted to see if that would float. And he watched it float, and this huge gust of wind came, and it took that boat away, right out into the middle of the lake, just out of that view of that boy. Now he's upset. His boat's gone. He goes home and he says to his mom, Mom, my boat is gone. And his mom said, well, did it work? Did it sink? And he said, no, that boat worked a little bit too well. The wind took it away and it's gone. Some time went by and he was walking downtown and he saw in the window of a secondhand shop that same boat. He goes in there and he says, Mr., Mr., that's my boat, that's my boat. And he picks it up and he grabs it and he starts to walk out the door. And that owner of that shop says, hold on, son, hold on, son. You can't just take that. I own that boat. And his son says, no, 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 no. Or the little boy goes over to that uh, shop owner and he says, no, this is my boat. See all the marks? These are the marks I made when I was building it. And he shows all the marks on that boat. And the owner says, no, 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 no. I own that boat now. In order for you to take it back, you have to pay me the price for it. Well, that little boy had no money. And he goes home and he works really hard and he raises all this money and he finally scrapes up enough money and he goes back to that shop. He grabs that boat and he lays that money down for the price of that boat and he takes that boat out of the store. And as he's walking, you could hear the little boy singing and as he's singing, he says, you are twice my boat. I first made you and you were mine and now I bought you and you're mine. That's what redemption does for us. Christ made us. Christ uh, formed us from the very beginning. He made man, but we were born in sin. He no longer owned us. We were owned by the enslavement of sin. We were owned by Satan. We were owned by the flesh. And Jesus Christ died for us. And it is through the currency of his blood and our repentance and faith that we are brought back into the family of God. That is something to be thankful for. That is something that we can praise God for. Through the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed. And after reading these verses this morning, our awe and gratitude for our salvation must be renewed. It is only by the grace of God that we have any hope when we remind ourselves daily how much we don't deserve it. How much we don't deserve any of this. And when we remind ourselves of that, the awe and the grace of God that we have for Him will only grow and increase. I want to close with this illustration. That doesn't mean we're done with church. There's something else we need to go over, so don't get all excited. The other day, uh, my wife set up a rule, and we're trying to teach our kids manners. And Kaysen, being a typical boy, uh, does things that are not appropriate as far as noises go. I'll leave it that way. And so one of the uh, things that we set up was him goofing around, and even if he makes silly noises with his mouth, he has to pay my wife. 
And so she is now on her way of buying a coach purse. Um, you know, the other day he did that noise. And so he said, buddy, you know the drill. And so one, you need to go upstairs and get some money. And it was late at night. And he said, buddy, tomorrow you need to pay your mom. Well, Kaysen remembers those things. And so it was Friday. Eileen was at work. And he said, Daddy, can you please go upstairs? And can you please get my Noah's Ark money out? And most likely it was probably a dollar that Russ had given him sometime at church. I said, buddy, I want to teach you a lesson. I want to show you what the word grace means. I'm going to pay your fee for you. The fee that you do not deserve to get out of. You did the crime. You do the punishment, so to speak. You deserve to pay your mom, but I love you, and I'm going to pay it for you. I said, buddy, that's grace. That's receiving something that you do not deserve. You know his response was to that? Thank you, Daddy. Thank you, Daddy. Of course, right? Well, a few moments later, Emerson spit, and she's supposed to pay a dollar. And you know what I heard Kaysen say, and, and, and he doesn't know that I was listening. I heard Kaysen say to Emerson, Emerson, I'll pay for you. I'll pay for you. So what had happened was Kaysen was living in the appreciation of the grace that was afforded to him to his dad, or by his dad. And then that appreciation, he wanted to do something nice and share that with his younger sister. See, as we live in an appreciation for what God has done for us, as redeemed children. And we live every single day with this sense of awe in what God has done for us. You know what's going to do? It's going to produce an appreciation in our hearts where we go out and we share with other people the good news that has been afforded to us. We're not going to be afraid to evangelize anymore. We're not going to be worrying about whether or not we explain the right things correctly. We're just going to go out and tell people about the good news that has been afforded to us and that's how the gospel spreads. May our prayer be that we would never overlook the salvation plan that has been afforded to us.